Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And I'm so excited to bring you another special guest, Dr. Lisa Bowens. Welcome, Dr. Bowens. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for joining me as I... uh, said uh, before we started recording that you came highly recommended from two of my dear friends, Dr. Esau McCauley and Dr. Dennis Edwards. Uh, They put me onto your book and I'm so excited that we're uh, (laughs) going to talk about it today. And as I said, before we started recording, we have the best first names uh, that you (laughs) can have. Yes, (laughs) I'm excited that we can connect uh, on that level. For those who don't know who you are, just give us a little bit of background about you. Well, I want to give a shout out to Esau and Dennis. They are great colleagues. I really enjoy working with both of them. Um, And thank you again, Lisa, for having me today. So um, I teach New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. And I've been at the seminary since 2008, came there as a PhD student. And then God opened the door for me to stay on as faculty. So I've been there for quite some time. My interest is Paul. I love working in the field of Pauline studies. And so I wrote my dissertation on 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm originally from Wilmington, North Carolina. So I'm a Southern girl. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'm, I'm very much interested in the New Testament and I teach a variety of courses. I teach introduction to Greek. I teach 2 Corinthians. African-American Pauline hermeneutics, the topic of our discussion today, as well as introduction to New Testament exegesis and Paul and apocalyptic as well. Awesome. Well, Paul is a hot topic uh, in this day, especially (laughs) around African-American readings. I'm I'm reminded of the book, Jesus and the Disinherited, where uh, Howard Thurman talks about his grandmother wouldn't let him read any Paul uh, text because it had been used against her. And so, uh, from that time to this day, uh, uh, understanding of Paul uh, has been challenging for African-Americans. So I'm yeah. so excited about your book. I have it here, African-American Readings of Paul. Um, what was the inspiration behind this new book? Well, I'm so glad you brought up Howard Thurman's story up about his grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, because that was one of the impetuses for me to write the book. So a couple of things happened. So. I was writing my dissertation, and as I said earlier, my dissertation is on 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's ascent to the third heaven. And so as I was writing that piece, I also wanted to include in the my dissertation a chapter on how African-Americans have interpreted that particular passage. And so my doctor father at the time, he was like, well, Lisa, I think this is probably a separate project. 
So at the same time I was having that conversation with my doctor father, I was going to these different conferences, which, um, and at these conferences, they were lifting up Howard Thurman's story about his grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, and how she um, talked about hearing Paul preach to her because she was a slave. And um, it's a very powerful story. And she tells Howard Thurman that because of how he was preached to the slaves that the, the slave master's minister would often say, slaves obey your masters. And so she did not want to really hear anything else from Paul other than 1 Corinthians 13 when she experienced freedom. So it's a really powerful story. And I kept hearing that story as I went to different conferences. And that story became the way or should I say, people assumed that that was the way African-Americans approached Paul. Um, they had some type of aversion to Paul because of this complex history in which Paul was used to um, sanction slavery. And so as I kept hearing this story told, I started wondering, is this really the case? Like what mm -hmm. is the relationship between African-Americans and Paul? And so, that experience and the experience with my doctor father just led me to say, well, why don't I just do a separate project and expand it from just 2 Corinthians 12 and just look at how have African-Americans interpreted Paul from the 1700s? And originally my goal was to talk from the 1700s to the present, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that was, it was too much, too much material, too many interpreters. So I cut it off at the mid, mid of the 20th century so it really was just an investigation and I wasn't sure what I would find, but I was curious because I wanted to see how have African-Americans interpreted Paul? How have they interpreted his letters? Um, how have they written about him? And so that's how this book came about, really an investigative journey, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So tell our audience, what is African-American uh, Pauline hermeneutics? Okay, so I would say it is an examination of how African-Americans have interpreted Paul from the 1700s to the present. I mean, that was, the, my, was my original goal, to look at all of the material, all of the interpreters. The book stops at the mid-20th century, but I think for African-American Pauline hermeneutics more broadly, it's just asking that question and seeking answers to that question of how um, Blacks have interpreted Paul. And so in the book, I look at a variety of um, texts, slave petitions, I look at essays, um, autobiographies of African-Americans, sermons. And um, it's really a historical journey because you're looking at a lot of historical documents, but it's also a biblical journey because they're using different Pauline texts and um, they are quoting Paul, they are, um, echoing Paul. Many of them are taking on a Pauline mantle, if you will. Mm. And they're using Paul in these wonderful ways to critique white supremacy, mm -hmm. to argue for justice, to argue for their freedom. And it, it really was an amazing experience for me to see how African-Americans took this apostle whom um, many slaveholders were using to justify their enslavement. They reclaimed Paul, if you will. Um, I like to think of African-American Pauline hermeneutics as also a protest hermeneutic or mm. resistance hermeneutic. Yeah, so they are resisting 
how um, um, many white interpreters are interpreting Paul and they're protesting the racism, the injustice, all of these things that are happening in their society. Mm -hmm. That's that's powerful. And I think that's helpful. And that I think fights against this narrative that people that our ancestors weren't critically thinking about what they were receiving. And exactly. I love that um, you have your foreword by Dr. Emerson Powery, which we've had on the podcast before talking about his book, Genesis of Liberation. Yes, and yes. he told a fascinating story that sticks with me to this day about a slave who was uh, challenging his slave master because his slave master was like, you're cursed. And he said, well, when I read scripture, Miriam's skin turned white. Um, yes. <laughs> when, yes. when, and so it's like, we have to reshape, I think for for the next generation, and I'm so glad you wrote this book because we do a historically black college and university tour called this Christianity and white man's religion. And mm -hmm. there's this, this narrative that, you know, slaves were just taking scripture as the slave masters were giving it to them as if our ancestors weren't critically thinking. And this, what you're saying really pushes back on that narrative. So I, I love that. And that, that leads to my next question. Why is it significant? Um, <laughs> that yeah. uh, I think um, you could speak to as well. Yeah, I think you I hit I think you hit the nail on the head, Lisa. It's significant because it pushes back against this idea that um, slaves were passive, right? Mm -hmm. That they they didn't have agency. And mm -hmm. I think what one of the things that I love about my research um, is that it shows that African Americans had agency and they used it to protest what they saw as injustice and racism mm -hmm. and white supremacy. And many of them in doing this risked their lives, mm. but they saw it as important to make life better for the next generation. Mm -hmm. And so I think you will see that pushback that as you were saying of uh, this um, narrative that African-Americans weren't fighting, weren't, um, or just like passively receiving scripture. Mm -hmm. um, they were constantly engaged in a counter hermeneutic. They mm -hmm. were constantly engaged in a resistance and protest hermeneutic. And the fact that I could not cover all of the material in my book shows, I think, the amount of um, resistance and protest that was going on in these mm -hmm. periods and in their utilization of Paul to, to do that, to protest. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. It's significant also because many of these figures were important people in American history. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of times people tend to separate American history, African-American history, but it's all intertwined. Mm -hmm. And so African-American history is an integral part of American history. And so many mm -hmm. of these figures are people who, who lived and moved in um, historical significant moments. For instance, I talk about Daniel Payne, who goes and meets with Abraham Lincoln on the eve of um, signing um, the Emancipation Proclamation for Washington, D.C. He has this meeting with, with Lincoln. And so these are many of these figures are people who um, used the positions that God gave them mm -hmm. to work for justice for the larger um, society. But then there are some figures in the book that May, are not on the part of Daniel Payne, not well known, but when mm -hmm. you look at what they've done and um, the impact of their work, they may not be well known, but their work speaks volumes. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's important that we kind of recover 
you know, our history. And even for me, there were some people that in this book I had never heard of until I began doing the research. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wow, why have I not heard of these wonderful <laughs> interpreters? Mm-hmm. And so it really was a journey for me. And I hope it will be a journey for the readers as well. That's awesome. When we think about um, just going deeper into um, your book, what were the early petitions for freedom that cite Paul? And you mentioned um, already some, but what are some others that you would like to highlight for our audience? Yeah. So um, this is one of the interesting facets of my research. So as early as 1774, we have um, enslaved African-Americans writing petitions and um, writing petitions to the government. We have one 1774 written to Massachusetts government. We have another petition in 1779 written to the um, government in Connecticut. And these enslaved Africans are using Paul to argue for their freedom. So for instance, in the 1774 petition, you have um, African-Americans citing Paul's words about the family, how husbands should love their wives and um, children obeying their parents. And they're, they're citing this, these texts and they're citing them to critique the slavery project, right? Mm-hmm. So if scripture, if you're saying this is a Christian nation and we're supposed to abide by the words of scripture, then how can we as husbands love our wives when part of slavery is separating the family, mm-hmm. taking away the parents from the children? There's no way we can do that. Yeah, and it's ingenious the way they craft their argument in this petition and say, we deserve to be free. We deserve to um, have our families stay intact. We deserve our justice. And then you have in the 1779 petition where um, the enslaved Africans who are writing that petition cite Paul's words in Acts 17.26, where Paul says, God has made of one blood all the nations of the earth. Mm-hmm. And they use that to um, argue against the idea of the white race being superior to mm-hmm. the black race. That mm-hmm. that is, you know, the scripture does not um, condone that um, because we're made of one blood of all nations of the earth. So you have these really um, uh, ingenious arguments in these petitions in which they are citing Paul to argue for their freedom and to argue for um, justice and to argue against white supremacy. And um, these petitions are before the abolitionist movement. So the Mm -hmm. fact that they are already doing this work before we have the abolition movement in place is really remarkable. And I think it speaks to the power of black faith. It Mm -hmm. speaks to the power of um, black intelligentsia. And it also speaks to the power of black fortitude that -hmm. even in the midst of their really um, horrendous circumstances, they were willing to stand up and use scripture and say, this is the way scripture is to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. That's so, so powerful. And uh, I'm I'm excited because I know that while we, when we're able to get back uh, to our tour, I, I'm definitely going to be recommending this to the students because I feel like they need to know this information. Um, it is so, so empowering and powerful. And just them pushing back and saying, hey, you're telling us to become Christians, but you're not giving us the tools to obey God. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's so, so powerful um, because mm-hmm. they're contradicting what they're trying to push on on the slaves. And they're they're 
pushing back against the hypocrisy, which I think is in, ingenious and so amazing that you captured that. Um, what role did Pauline language uh, play in the enslaved conversions? Yeah, so um, what you just lifted up, Lisa, is very important um, about the hip hypocritical nature of what many of these interpreters saw in white Christianity. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you will see that these interpreters did push back and saying what, what you were just saying about you are presenting to us a Christianity that is not real, that is mm -hmm. not right, because mm -hmm. we can see in the way that you're living that it's not right. And mm -hmm. so these interpreters go about um, trying to live out the gospel more faithfully. And mm -hmm. John Jay, for instance, one of my interpreters I talk about, he actually calls out his owner on that. It's like, you are not living the way you're supposed to live when you look in scripture. Mm. So they're definitely pushing back on this hypocritical um, practice of Christianity. And I talk about Frederick Douglass in the book who has this fantastic um, distinction between what he calls slaveholding Christianity mm -hmm. and the Christianity of Christ. And that was a distinction that many of these interpreters made. The Christianity practiced by these slaveholders was not the Christianity of Christ and not the Christianity practiced by Paul. Mm -hmm. So when we get to these enslaved conversion experiences, which is another fascinating part of the book that I really enjoyed um, researching, you have these African-Americans who have these really profound encounters with God. Um, I'm Pentecostal, so we might want to call these Pentecostal experiences. Yeah, I grew up Pentecostal <laughs> so they, too. So I'm a PK. So, I, I'm <laughs> so they have these really fantastic supernatural experiences with God in which they experience visions. Sometimes they are um, experiencing trances. They see angels. And all of these um, experiences transform them in really powerful and profound ways. Mm. And when you see them tell this story, see, tell them, read them, reading them tell how these conversions took place, often they are using Pauline language to describe um, their experiences. So mm -hmm. they will say, you know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, I went to the third heaven and they'll describe the angels they saw and some of them will even describe um, their family members that may have passed away long ago. They see them. They will talk about these conversion experiences in the language of I'm a new creation. Mm -hmm. So this sense that my body has been made new. And I think um, it's very important to highlight the significance of that adopt adaptation of Paul's language for their own experience. Their mm. bodies are made new. And when you think about how these African-Americans bodies were constantly beaten and tortured mm. mm -hmm. and for their bodies to be made new through wow. these conversion experiences, these conversion experiences were not just religious or spiritual experiences, but they were also political experiences. Because when you think about it, it was also, the, religion played a large role in how um, laws were made. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm having these really profound experiences with God, mm -hmm. this confirms my humanity, mm -hmm. right? That these laws have been made to deny my humanity. 
to say that I'm not human. I'm three fifths of a human being. Mm -hmm. um, I am having these profound experiences with God, which testify to the fact that I am created in the image of God. God loves me. God loves um, who I am. God loves my black body mm -hmm. and he affirms who I am. And so these, these conversion experiences, they were religious experiences, but they also had political and social implications because it empowered these African-Americans to resist, mm -hmm. to protest and to say, yes, we are human. And I think sometimes in our own modern context, it's hard to imagine that mm -hmm. there was a time when African-Americans were considered not human mm -hmm. and how devastating that was for um, African-Americans. But when you look at these conversion experiences and how they talk about them, they say that God is affirming my humanity. I'm a new creation. They also use the language of Paul workmanship. Mm -hmm. I am God's workmanship. God created me. And um, if you set that in the context of um, other creation stories that were out there, that were um, promoted by um, slavery proponents. There were creation stories that they would tell slaves that God didn't create them. Mm. That um, they were created for manual labor. So when you, when you read these conversion stories and you see that these stories combat those narratives that were often preached and proclaimed to the enslaved, that's that's powerful, and I didn't I didn't it didn't even register about the new creation and the bodies like that just completely uh, gave a different light to to everything and how they were processing that and even the mm -hmm. creation story that you just mentioned I think it's so powerful um, because it's like they had to dehumanize them in order to soothe their conscience to treat them any way exactly. that they wanted to because if they said you're made in the image of God like us then mm -hmm. they would the guilt and the shame of what they were doing, but to to try to right. warp their consciences, they gave a new creation narrative. Right. Um, right. And so yeah. it brought mm -hmm. dignity, as you're saying, for them to really look in scripture and see what God said about us mm -hmm. as African people. So, yes. Um, yes. That's, so yes. that's so amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's say, why, yeah. And that's why you have this push to prohibit African-Americans from learning to read, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm giving you as a white slave owner, if I'm giving you my own version of the creation account, I wanna try to limit access to, to the ability for you to learn to read so you can get in scripture and read for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see other interpreters I talk about in the book who, um, who such as um, Jupiter Hammond, He's a very controversial figure on it for a number of reasons. But one of the things he talks about is he, he urges his um, enslaved brothers and sisters to try to learn to read. And one of the reasons he says, so you can learn to read scripture for yourself mm. and you don't have to rely upon um, what the white slave owners minister is preaching to you. And so I think so when you have all of these dynamics in place, it's so remarkable that these African-Americans not only read, but they interpret scripture for themselves. And I use the phrase that I borrowed from Brad Braxton, they seize hermeneutical control. Mm 
mm. when they're interpreting these scriptures for themselves. They are, you know, um, taking up, they're using their agency to say, we are not going to listen to what you all are telling us we are, because we know, we know better. <laughs> we know that this, what you're telling us is not true. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to think about just the um, remarkable tenacity of these interpreters in seizing hermeneutical control of the scripture and being willing to proclaim that to others, even though they realize their lives may be at stake. That's that's powerful, especially I love how you shared about how the anti-literacy laws were were created to keep people from reading scripture. And I always tell uh, students who are like, I don't want the Bible is oppressive. The best protest against white supremacy is to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation because yes. they never wanted us to read it to begin with. So if yes. you throw it away, you're actually doing what white supremacists wanted you to do in the first place. And so exactly. to protest is to read it. And yeah. so I love that you you brought out um, that point, considering and in, in light of um, history of African-American Pauline interpret um, hermeneutics, where should uh, we go from here? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done. Um, I think, as I stated at the beginning of the interview, I couldn't cover all the interpreters and all the material. There's a lot, a lot of sources that I didn't include in the book, a lot of people that I didn't include in the book. So one of the things I hope the book does, and I say this in a couple of places in the in the monograph, it's kind of like an introductory volume. Mm. So I hope that, yeah, so I hope that one of the things the book does is kind of spur interest mm -hmm. in this particular subfield of New Testament. And I think, you know, we have a lot of African-American biblical interpretation, and that is fantastic. We need that. Um, but to have just like a subfield where we just focus on Paul and how African-Americans have interpreted Paul, I think is important. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that this book will spur interest in this um, field, that people will begin to do more research on interpreters and, and sources. And I hope that also we can like expand. So we look at historical documents, but also what about Paul and the spirituals? Like um, mm. how, ha how have Paul's words been taken up in spirituals that, that we've seen? Um, mm -hmm. Paul in literature. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. hoping that people will kind of examine um, novels and the uses of Paul. So I'm, I'm just hoping that this book is just kind of like a starter, mm -hmm. um, an introduction, because I think the field is wide open. There's a lot of possibility there. And in doing that, I think we, we reclaim a part of African-American history and a part of ourselves that is so important his, historically, theologically, biblically, um, because we have been engaged in biblical interpretation for hundreds and hundreds of years, Pauline interpretation for hundreds of years. And I, I think it's important to keep the conversation going. That's awesome. What was the hardest chapter uh, for you to write and why? Oh, yeah, that, that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the early chapters were harder. Um, and I say that because in a, a lot of the earlier chapters, I was actually dealing with um, enslaved autobiographies. Mm -hmm. And those are often very difficult to read um, because you, you, 
you get a sense of the horrendous nature of their daily lives. Mm. And it really touches you. I mean, I, I wasn't, um, I went through a range of emotions as I was, you know, reading and writing. And sometimes I would just have to take a break. I would decompress by talking to my family members. But reading the enslaved narratives, I think it should be required reading for every American citizen because I think we need to know the really historical nature of slavery. And I think sometimes people say, oh yeah, slavery happened a long time ago. It's not important. But I, I think it, you know, it's, it's something that really needs to be understood because it was a dehumanization on so many levels. Mm-hmm. It was a dehumanization through laws, through biblical interpretation, through um, social realities. And the fact that these African-Americans endured so much, but did not let go of their faith. Mm. That was, I mean, that's inspiring. It's challenging to read these texts, but it's also inspiring because you see how no matter what they face, they would not let go. They refused Mm. to give up. So even though writing those chapters, those earlier chapters, it was hard. It was also inspiring um, to, yeah, just to hear and read these stories. And I felt really connected to these interpreters as I was reading them and incorporating them in my book. Um, they have such powerful voices. And I just hope the book gives does justice to the, the beautiful legacy um, I think they leave us. That's amazing. Um, what other things that we haven't discussed that you would like readers to take away from, from this work? Um, I think it's important for us to recognize the complexity, but also the powerful tradition that African-Americans have in terms of using scripture to protest, um, what I call resistance and protest hermeneutics. Um, I think it's important for us to receive that legacy and realize that scripture is relevant. And when you see these interpreters, you see how they see scripture as relevant to their context in which they live. It's relevant to discussions about race. It's relevant to discussions about white supremacy and injustice and oppression. Scripture is relevant to that conversation and it can be a resource and a source against these um, powers that um, we are constantly fighting against even in in our day and time. So I think it's important that um, we understand our legacy and also see these interpreters as guides to ways to go forward. And so I think they, they speak for their own time, but they also, I think, give us a word for our time as well. Um, how do we interpret scripture faithfully and well? Mm. They show us how to do that. How do we interpret scripture as um, a force against injustice? They show us how to do that. Um, how do we stay faithful to God in the midst of really every circumstance that tells us to let go? They show us how to do that, how to be resilient. And so I think these interpreters are important for us to engage and, and embrace and um, see what we can learn from them. I think we can learn a lot. I think we can learn a lot. 
That's amazing. As you were talking, I was getting the the thought of Hebrews, the great cloud of witnesses. Yes. yes. And uh, that's really just the, them being able to hold on. I yes. remember Dr. Cowery said that as he was reading the narratives for his book, he was amazed, like, why did they hang on? Yes. And, yes. and you're saying that. And we have so many people falling away from Christianity because of the current yes. cultural climate. And to hear that they, in spite of all, like they were in it, in it, you know, yes, um, yes. and still held on. I think it's an mm-hmm. encouragement for us who are struggling right now to mm-hmm. many that may be listening to hold on. Uh, and I yes. believe they held on because it, they believe that it was the truth. Yes. Um, and yes. that's 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 encouraging um, for us to keep the faith because we have have the truth. Um, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how can people get a copy of this book? And I beg of you all that are watching, get definitely get a copy. <laughs> how, how can people get a copy of it? Yeah, so it's available on Amazon. Um, so you can go to Amazon and um, you type in African-American Readings of Paul, it will come up. Um, you could also get it from the publisher, Erdman's. Um, but I think um, most people are buying it from Amazon. Yes. That's awesome. For those who are interested just in this topic in general, any other additional resources after they grab your book and and um, digest it, what other resources we, or next steps book would you recommend to them? Yeah. So you lifted up my great colleague, Emerson Powery, who, who I, I love dearly. He's been a wonderful um, encourager and supporter of my work. And I love his work as well. So I would say for those who are interested in African-American biblical interpretation more broadly. Emerson Powery's book that you mentioned earlier, Lisa, Genesis of Liberation that he wrote along with Rodney Sadler. That mm-hmm. is another great monograph. Um, I use it in my classes as well. Um, another book um, about Af- African-American interpretation, um, biblical interpretation by um, Alan Callahan called The Talking Book. Mm-hmm. That's another great resource. Um, another book I would lift up is um, the new the first and only New Testament commentary for um, written by African-Americans true to our native land. I would also lift that um, monograph up as well. Now there's a recent book, um, you know, the books by um, Esau McCulley and um, Dennis Edwards. Those two books I would also encourage people to buy as well. The, the thing about the books that I've named, um, Emerson Powery's book, um, Alan Callahan, they are great resources for um, understanding African-American biblical interpretation more broadly. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's those, those are great resources. Um, my book is the first book to trace Paul, just to focus specifically on Paul from the 1700s to the mid 20th century. So I mm-hmm. think when you read all of these books together, you really get a great um, sense of um, how African Americans were, in Brad Braxton's words, seizing hermeneutical control mm-hmm. of Scripture and using it for um, for justice and um, and um, um, to argue against oppression. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's been a joy uh, to have you. Uh, remember to get uh, Dr. Bowen's book. Um, and thank you for watching another episode of the Jude Three Project. Uh, We're so excited that you chose to take the time to do so. Remember, you could get all of our curriculum 
um, and uh, see other podcasts and take online courses at g3project.org. Also, remember, you can uh, become a monthly supporter of the G3 Project by going to g3project.org backslash donate. And remember, here at the G3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the G3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.ju3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to ju3project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.